Welcome to the Player Engage podcast, where we dive into the biggest challenges, technologies, trends, and best practices for creating unforgettable player experiences. Player Engage is brought to you as a collaboration between Keyword Studios and HelpShift. Here is your host, Greg Posner. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Player Engage podcast. I'm Greg Posner, and today we are joined by Jamie Smith, the principal game designer at People Can Fly. He's got a really impressive background working on games such as The Division, Far Cry, Driver, Call of Duty Vanguard. Uh, he's been at Sumo Digital and more. And before I take too much credit and too much of uh, what you can talk about, Jamie, uh, can you do a quick intro of yourself? Yeah, no problem. Yeah, nice to be here. Nice to chat to you. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Jamie Smith. I've been working in games for over 13 years at this point. Um, most recently, I'm working for People Can Fly as a principal game designer. We can kind of cover that in more detail as to what that kind of involves day to day. Uh, but prior to that, I've been at various studios, including Ubisoft, Electronic Arts, uh, helping out in the Call of Duty franchise with Activision, and then also Sumo Digital. And during the majority of that time, I've worked on all different types of games, you know, open world games, such as the Division, driving games, the crew and Driver San Francisco, and helping out in a various bunch of others. Uh, some not released, unfortunately, uh, but the majority of them have, uh, you know, hit the shelves and are available for people to play. I've heard that most game designers have a lot more canceled or canned games under their belt than actually successful released video games. Would you would you find that as being true? Uh, it can depend. Um, I, I've been one of the lucky ones in the sense that I had a few cancelled projects probably earlier on in my career and then didn't have any for a really long time and then had a couple that are probably not going to see the light of day towards you know this point in my career. Just you know, it, It's unfortunate things happen. It can be a multitude of different things. It could be the market is not quite right for that particular game in terms of you know there's too many competitors. Maybe it's the wrong time of year. Maybe the amount of money that needs to go into the game to make it kind of shine is not worth the kind of the budget and so on. So no, normally it's factors out of any given individual's control. Yeah, and we could dive into that, but I want to kind of start high level. And, and I'll tell you what's most exciting to me about this podcast episode here with you is that a lot of times we deal with the player experience from the customer success side of things. So people who are dealing with customer support or or trust and safety or something else. And then you reached out to me after we released my episode with Matt Ambler, who was doing sound design. And that was a new world for me because I never really thought about the player experience and sound. And obviously it's there. Just And now you are a principal game designer, which my first question is going to be because I... I this is a new podcast for me that everyone's listening. Like, I, I don't really know much about the true front end. I'm not calling it front end of game design, but like, what's the role of a principal game designer? Perfect. Yeah. So um, a principal game designer, and, and it's, a, it's a loaded term because it's a long title, but I'll break it down into a few different things. So the on the design side, designers in general are responsible for the player experience. So what is the core nugget of the game like what is the goal that you're trying to achieve is it in mario a really satisfying kind of playful character that you can run around the world and kind of have fun with that might be the direction that comes from a director and i'll touch upon that in a moment because the designer and director is two slightly different roles the designer think of it a bit like you're at an orchestra and the designer is the conductor they're the ones that are trying to get everybody on the same page that everybody plays instrument they're trying to play you know a, a kind of a symphony but the conductor's there to make everybody you know, be aligned. Because if not, it could just potentially be a, a lot of different noise. Um, so, that's, so that's one side of it. So that's the design side. It's all about the core experience. On the game design side, it's the thing that nobody ever mentions. But a game designer is kind of a fake title in the sense that there is, um, for the majority of people's careers, they will never actually work as, as a game designer. They will work as a feature designer. And when I say feature, I mean a small piece of the pie. So if you're working on a Mario game, for example, the chances are is that you might be involved with Mario, you might be involved with the enemies, you might be involved with you know the boss fights, but you might not necessarily touch any given other aspect of the game. So when we say game designer, it's a catch-all kind of term, but there's lots of different types of designers, but most of them will be responsible for a particular chunk of the game. And that leads me to the principal part, which is, um, so as you go through your kind of career as a designer, you might start as an intern or a junior, work your way up to a, an intermediate, to a senior, to a principal. And the only real difference between each of those roles is that outside of the experience that's required is the amount of ownership and autonomy that you have over the particular experience. So if I go back to the Mario example, 
you wouldn't necessarily give control or ownership of Super Mario to somebody who is on their first ever project on their first day, but they might get a hands-on to, you know, maybe one of Mario's kind of moves, or maybe it's an enemy that Mario kind of comes across. As they work their way up to kind of a principal, maybe you get full ownership of the characters that are in the game because you've kind of worked your way there. You understand the systems and what it takes to basically build Mario. So that that's it kind of in a, in a slightly longer nutshell. But the only other thing I want to touch upon is just about a director. The director is the person that brings the vision to the project and the difference between a director and a designer, um, because directors can be designers, you know, there's no Mm -hmm. prerequisite as to what discipline they come from, um, is that a a director is basically about what is the type of experience we're going to create and maybe who is the audience and why are we making it? Whereas the designer takes that kind of knowledge and then how do we build that particular thing and who is the people that we need on this team to bring these kind of features to life. So it's it's kind of a designers are more low level kind of consideration of what the director is actually intending to do with that game. So if I could dumb it down for myself just a little. So designers actually knows the technology is maybe coding is designing is creating an asset whereas the director who can be that person but the director is the visionary saying i want to see mario jumping through a cloud world now and i want you to make this happy so just like a movie at the end of the day right exactly that and i always like the movie kind of analogy because it's kind of you know you get your ridley scott's or you you know you chris nolan's or something like that they'll come over and they will just say something like hey here is this wild idea i'm gonna bring you know 200 BC Rome to life or wherever it may be, go. And and then that's what the team is kind of responsible for. And it's the designers that are at the vanguard at the front of that. And you do find as well as that some designers might not necessarily agree with what the director is kind of wanting, but, but that's the whole purpose of the designer is the designer's there to bring the director's vision to life, r- regardless of kind of any subjective kind of aspects of that. Um, you know, you sh- th- th- there's a time and a place to kind of challenge the direction but the goal of a designer is to bring the direction to life, not not to kind of, you know, argue against it at every step of the way. Okay, so this is all making sense to me. And I'm going to have questions that dig more into this. And yeah. the first one being is that as a game designer, do you aspire to one day be a director or is it two different skill sets at the end of the day? They can mesh and overlap, but are they two different paths? Yeah, um, it, it can be interesting, actually, because as I said earlier, there is no prerequisite for who can become a director. Um, I suppose most people, and including myself, have aspirations of getting to that kind of stage one day, mostly in the sense that you're at the stage of your career there, especially if it comes to a new IP, like a new product, a new game, a new idea, that it comes from the designer first. So. Uh, sorry, from the director first. So go back to the thing I said earlier about there is no real such thing as a game designer. I would probably argue that a director is pretty much that role. You know, you, you can come up with the game, you can come up with something out of thin air and bring that to life. So, so definitely I, I aspire towards that. And also when you're getting into a kind of a principal position, maybe you're an associate director, you know, the the right hand kind of person you're probably doing bits and pieces of a director's kind of role anyway, especially if they're away on holiday and you're the kind of stand-in to go talk to the publishers or whoever mm-hmm. may be on the project. What type of, and maybe this isn't the right type of question to ask and feel free to stop me, but what type of conversations do you have with publishers? Like just updating them on the project itself, letting them know how it's going. I mean, right, it took me a long time to understand what the difference between like a, a development group and a publisher was, right? It's like, oh, the publisher is kind of just the funding people. They're the ones paying for this. And then it then goes to a studio who's actually building the game, right? It's kind of how do you build this this machine? Yeah, I mean, th- there can be lots of different types of relationships. I mean, the, the, the financial aspect is definitely one part of it, which is there is a team, a development team at a particular studio. They want to make a game. Maybe the studio doesn't have the money to kind of pay for it. So they'll bring in another company to kind of help fund the project. But the kind of the strings attached that come with that is that the publishers are getting a big buy into, you know, how they feel the project should look, how it should behave, the final quality. And it's the same for anybody who watches movies. The start of the movie, you will see, you know, five or six different production companies that come up that say how they brought this thing to life. In games, it tends to be one publisher, one developer. 
Um, those relationships could form over time. Maybe it's some historical kind of relationships. People have moved from a development team to a publisher. And the best way I'd describe a publisher for me is they're a bit like a guardian angel in the sense that the development team is so ingrained in the weeds working on a game, grinding through tasks, kind of working day to day. The publisher is almost like the eagle in the sky that can kind of see things, how they're going on. Maybe they're more aware of the markets. So sometimes publishers bring in market kind of knowledge, market experience and specialism, and will say, hey, we can see that boulder further up the road that you haven't, you you folks haven't even realized is even there yet. So they can kind of, you know, point out the minefields before people kind of come across them. And also they're an external voice to the team. You know, they're not, they're not hands deep in the project day to day. They can see things that the team might, you know, overlook and would provide suggestions as to how other projects or comparable games have solved a particular problem. And then there's the uh, the opposite of that, though, right? Where maybe the publisher is trying to to push their own narrative. As I read, the, I watched this whole video. I forgot who published it on SimCity 2000, and then they were talking about the latest SimCity when EA is trying to push Origin into the game and. Yeah, it just broke some city, right? So at a certain point, it's and it's interesting the studios that you name for, right? Because again, living in the world of Reddit, I, I make my own perceptions of what each studio is like. EA people think is overbearing, although the more I talk to people, I, I less think that's the case. Activision and even going back to what you talked about about your game design, right? Like when you're working on Call of Duty Vanguard, right? You're you're kind of limited in what your creativity can be right because you're you're coming into an already developed franchise same with far cry yeah. same with driver right and i forgot if you sorry i forgot if it was division one or two at least division one maybe you're building something new so it could be yeah. anything right like and i know there's no direct question i'm asking here right but like your your freedom definitely is at the mercy of the type of franchise and the publisher you're working for. Is, is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I mean, I mean, in a sim- in a simple answer, definitely yes. But but also that's also the beauty of game development, which is uh, I have had some projects that are more along the lines of what you've just described. I have also had experiences that are the complete opposite of that. And I tend to find, especially when it comes to when you when you talk about autonomy, definitely creating a new IP opens the doors for kind of new ideas and hey where do we go because you, you don't know what you don't know and when it comes to a new ip you might be able to point out a successful game that's on the on the shelf and say hey we want to be like destiny or something so you kind of move towards that but if it's an established kind of franchise there's already metrics there's an ingrained knowledge there's an audience there is publisher there is you know the financial kind of side of it there are a lot more factors that feed into every decision that you make so that things might not necessarily go your way this time or think of it a bit like an oil tanker it's going to get there but the turning rate is going to be much slower whereas if it's a brand new ip if you don't like an idea much like a jet ski you can just turn the other direction you know pretty quickly but i do find a lot that comes from um, regular discussions, especially on the publishing side, don't leave it six months and kind of have a catch up with the publisher. And then they throw lots of curveballs or lots of surprises at you. The, the best projects I've been on in terms of a collaboration, especially when it comes to a new IP, have been we're chatting to the publisher on a regular basis. We know roughly where we're kind of heading, but they can keep kind of nudging us in the right direction. We can kind of keep nudging them in the right direction. And it's more of a conversation as opposed to more of a mandate. Communication always seems to be key. And if I could say one consistent from company to company I've ever been at is that communication is really poor for the most part. And where do you collaborate and different workspaces for everything. And it's super important for any studio that's working on the collaborative project together to make sure that everyone is kind of at the same place right so so i mean from different companies you've been at what 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 are the successful ways you've seen collaboration done i guess tools wise or or i don't know yeah i mean there's lots of different things well funnily enough you mentioned communication one one thing that we do have is kind of retrospectives uh, retrospectives and postmortems which are effectively discussions at a given point of the project or certain you know heartbeats through the project which will take stock of how things have been going up until a particular point. Uh, no surprises and no guesses that unanimously almost every single project ever 
communication is always t- top of the list as, as in terms of a problem of any project. It doesn't matter how big or small the game is, if it's new or not. Um, but in terms of what tends to work is uh, a lot of people work in feature teams. And I didn't cover this kind of earlier. So a designer is just one part of a small team. And that small team is a mixed discipline team. So it could be animators, audio, like you've had in the show previously. It could be programmers. It could be any, any wherever the need is for a particular feature, those people kind of get together. And the idea is, is that that feature team is working towards a shared goal that the team completely owns. And typically, it's the designer that's kind of spearheading that team. In terms of going back to communication, those are the best teams it's a small scale kind of unit of cross discipline, mixed discipline peers working together on a shared goal and then adding some value to the game that everybody is kind of bought into. And then when you start to see that enough with, you know, small features and eventually they become bigger features, normally what happens is the most successful small teams on the project, the, the learnings of that team then get applied to kind of others uh, on the project. And that might just be, the way that stand-ups are conducted in the morning, you know, how we all jump on a call, everybody's on camera, everybody, you know, cracks a joke or something. There, there might be lots of menial small things that add up, you know, and any given small thing on its own doesn't really make much of a difference. But the combination of how people approach each other, um, how they review work together, sharing screens, we're in a remote space, so we're looking for tools that have high frame rates because we're trying to show the game off in the best light and the highest quality and stuff. Um, but ultimately, there, there is no one given thing. It's just lots of little, you know, best practices that amount to something much greater. Is it difficult in a large company like Activision to get that message across? Or is it when, you, when one team sees another team doing really well, is it very apparent? Uh, that can depend. I mean, definitely the scale or the scope of the project is is a factor of limitation, I would probably say, because on Vanguard, for example, the Call of Duty Vanguard, I was part of the campaign team. And maybe I have some feedback or maybe I have some communications about Battle Royale or multiplayer in general or the, the co-op mode or zombies or something like that. But, but in general, we're all just focused on the campaign. And more specifically, I'm focused on the weapons. And more specifically, I'm focused on the team that's you know involved with the weapons. It's almost like you know layers of kind of communication. And then if if a certain feature of the game was coming out more prominent than kind of others, or maybe a team was delivering successfully, you know, they were delivering things in advance of what was estimated a lot, then people would start to look at that team and say, hey, why is this team doing so well? But this other team is really struggling to kind of get things kind of up and running. That would be the point of where it kind of crops up. And in terms of making that apparent, you have a producer on the team the producer in some companies, especially bigger projects, are more like time managers or they're making sure that we're heading towards deadlines, you know, within meaningful t- kind of timeframes. They'll be the people that will have access to that kind of data that makes it apparent because they can set the graphs up, they can set the curves. You know, maybe the people that are doing really well on the weapons team, well, maybe now they need to go help the enemy AI team because they're struggling. And, you know, one team is ahead, one team is behind. So they, they would be the ones that would have that kind of information. And the skill set, I mean, right, from the from the technical side, the skill set translates from one to the other, right? But, like, from a mindset perspective, like, I just spent the last two months designing every different gun in Call of Duty, like, and now all of a sudden I got to go take a look at levels. Is it like a, oh, crap moment? Like, I have no idea what I'm looking at here. Or is it just kind of like, all right, riding a bike, I'm going to get back on and just go? Yeah, that, 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 this is a really good question, actually, and I, I skipped over this kind of earlier. So when when a designer's at the start of their career, typically you're going to get thrown whatever bones you get thrown. So if, if you are going to work on the enemy AI system, that's what you'll be working on. If somebody throws you a bone to work on Mario, that's what you'll be working on and so on. So at the start of your career, you, you don't necessarily get to pick and choose, but what you will get is access to the whole buffet. So you'll do lots of little samples. You might find there at the start of your career that you actually prefer that you like working on weapons and that's all you want to do. So what you tend to find is as people, especially designers stay in the industry longer, they will almost like gravitate towards a specialism. 
especially if it's on a big AAA kind of project. So whilst I'm working on the guns on Call of Duty, for example, that's an interest to me, uh, what, what's called like moment to moment design, you know, the game feel kind of side. I might get thrown a curveball to go work on the enemies, but I'd worked on enemies on a previous project. So it's it's not unfamiliar to me. But if you are somebody that's coming in, you know, brand new to the industry, you're kind of learning you know, just just on the go. Typically, you'll be alongside a more senior designer and more senior developers that run the team that will kind of guide you. But for most designers, especially when you've been in the industry for 10 years or so, you've probably experienced most of what there is out there, unless you're constantly changing genres, because there'll be different skills needed for that kind of stuff. Do you have a preference in how you like to operate? Do you like, I mean, looking again at the games that we named earlier, they're literally all over the place, right? Is that your preference? Do you have something you like to work on the most? Yeah, I, I like to do lots of different things. I mean, that that that's shown in my kind of CV, mostly kind of third person, um, open world kind of games. So the types of things that I would play, co-op kind of squad games. But at the, at the start of my career, it was more driving games at a time when I don't really, as a player, play driving games. So sometimes, you, you know, you don't necessarily get to pick and choose. But right now, I'm more involved in three Cs, which is character controls camera. And that's basically hands on the pad, moment to moment gameplay. And that is everything about how the game feels kind of moment to moment. So I'm not particularly precious if it's a Mario game or a Call of Duty as long as it's in that kind of realm of what the player feels every moment. I want to talk about the three C's, but before we do, we yeah. kind of have this fire fire something round. I think my marketing fire, team yeah. the name I forgot, right? So I'm yes. just going to ask you some five quick questions. Whatever comes at the top of your head, think about it. Then I want to jump back into that. Uh, good to go? Cool, yeah. Cool. If you're going to go to a bar or a bar and order a drink, what type of drink are you ordering? Uh, normally Desperados. It's like tequila beer. Yeah. All right. Last book you read? Oh, it was just this morning. Um, Psychology of Money. Psychology of Money. Nice. Uh, what did you have for breakfast? This morning I had oats and yogurt. What is your dream vacation? Uh, New York. That's where I'll be headed soon. There you go. And finally, last but not least, if you weren't working in the video game industry, what do you think you would be doing? Detective in the police. I think also, so, so, yeah, so, so, something to that kind of realm. You know, I, I like James Bond kind of stuff. So anything along those kind of lines, like investigative kind of sides. Nice. All right. There we go. All right. So I took notes on some of the stuff I listened to. And one of them was the three C's you talked about, like you just mentioned, cameras, control characters. I want to dig more into them, what you meant by that. I think I imagine like playing all, I was all those platformers and understanding of everything, looking and feel. You also talk a lot about marginal innovation and I want to, I think you do, right? Yeah, it's yeah, a good yeah. note for you. I'm just more curious on kind of what you mean by that, right? Because you you know you play Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, then Call of Duty Modern yeah. Warfare 3. What's marginal innovation? And when does yeah. it matter? When doesn't it? So uh, you just started talking about the three Cs as kind of your design philosophy, it seems. Can, can you break that down so, so I get a better understanding of what that means? Yeah, yeah, no problem. So so the three C's is kind of an acronym that uh, originally it came up from, um, I think it's a Mark Cerny talk in 2002. So I've heard some people online chat that it's a, it's a Ubisoft specific term, but actually the first origin was from Mark Cerny. Mark Cerny is a fairly, really famous game designer who worked on Sonic 2 and a bunch of other stuff. He's involved in the PlayStation 5. And anyway, he, he came up with this term, which is three C's, character control camera. And the notion of that is, Every single game has the three C's, pretty much. You're not always a character. You know, in Tetris, you're a block. You know, that's the character. But the camera defines your kind of window into the game world. The controls is what's the peripheral device that you're using. So it's not always a gamepad. It could be motion controller. It could be a Game Boy flight stick, whatever it may be. Uh, and then the character is the, the almost like the avatar that's in the game. So in some games, it's a physical avatar like, you know, Mario or a, or a car, for example, in other games like Tetris, it's it's a kind of a block, you know, that's what you are. So so that's cool. But the three C's, the idea is, is that you you have to consider them all almost like a triangle. You can't change the camera without considering how that impacts upon the controls of the character and any kind of variation on that. It's almost like a triangular uh, relationship. But the most important part there is, is that um, if you get any of those three things wrong or they're not comfortable, people will know about it straight away. Because the three C's is the thing that you experience in every single game, every moment of every single game. 
some people tend to refer to this as more like moment to moment design and game feel, which is the expansion of that, which is the thing that you're doing moment to moment always needs to feel satisfying. So in Call of Duty, the thing you're doing moment to moment is firing guns. So the three C's for the guns should be good. The controls are nice and responsive. The camera is nicely framed. So basically the player gets to see everything they want. They're not getting motion sickness. You know, maybe they've got some nice depth of field kind of effects on the camera. And then the character itself, especially in a first person game, it's not just a floating camera. It's a convincing depiction that you're playing as a third person character. Because if you go back to something like GoldenEye, it literally is just a floating gun kind of on the screen. Whereas Call of Duty's got really advanced animations that make it feel like you're a, you're a real character. Um, so that's those. And then when it comes to game feel, game feel is about how it feels satisfying to do the thing that you are doing all of the time, moment to moment. So in Call of Duty, the thing that people never chat about is um, it always feels good to shoot things in Call of Duty. It feels good to get the headshots, the, you know, the sniper kind of kill. But the thing that you're doing all of the time is missing. You know, every, every time a player plays a game, good accuracy would be 33%. So that means every player, on average, is going to miss two out of every three bullets. Um, obviously, that can go up and down depending on if it's a machine gun versus a sniper rifle. But the general notion is, if you're playing a shooting game and you're missing all of the time, it needs to feel good. The same as Mario. You play any Mario game, especially Mario Odyssey, you start in an area where there is no enemies, there's just some rolling hills, it feels good just to run around in a circle with Mario because a 3Cs designer has spent several years of their life trying to make Mario feel as good as possible in a scenario where there is absolutely no challenge kind of whatsoever. And people make their entire careers like out of that kind of sub-discipline of design. And that's mostly what I've been leaning towards the last kind of five or six years. It's fascinating. I'm sorry, I'm taking notes here. So if, if I'm looking away, I just find this amazing yeah. because, you know, I also think it's a lot to do with, the, you say game feel, right? Like the immersion, how yeah. much do I feel? And I think I think of some of these more recent Sonics, not the latest one, but like where it switches from 2D to 3D and like the yeah. camera pans and it does all this stuff. And, and I, I can't tell you I've played those games, right? But I... I play games where all of a sudden the camera changes and you don't see your player anymore and things just feel stuck or broken. And compared to like a game, like I've been playing uh, Starfield a lot and yeah. when you're encumbered, you run slowly and it just feels like, all right, I hate this, but it feels accurate, right? And, and yeah. I don't know, it's interesting to kind of think about this stuff. I, I love the fact that you're even bringing up like most of the time when you play a shooting game, you miss. And someone's got to sit there for a lot of time talking about like, all right, well, we got to create a whole design for missing because that's the biggest thing that everyone's going to continue to see time and time again. How do we make that focal? How do we make that feel good so people don't get pissed off and, and quit when they when they miss? Um, yep. It's crazy. It's an interesting way to think about that. So, I mean, at the end of the day, would you consider that like a, your design philosophy? Is that the right word for it? Like, is it a philosophy, the three C's? Or, or is it? I don't even really know what I mean by philosophy, but yeah, I mean, I mean, philosophy-wise, I'm I'm a big proponent of kind of loving the player. That's something else we can touch upon about kind of low-level things. But when it comes to three Cs nowadays, you know, I sound like a bit like an old man to say nowadays, but in, in in games now, a lot of companies will have a dedicated hero designer or a dedicated character designer. That they will all go by different names, typically, but ultimately it's the person that is responsible for the moment-to-moment -moment gameplay so on forza there will be a, a car handling designer all they do all day every day full time for five years is design how the cars feel they, they don't touch any other part of the game kind of whatsoever and mario there is somebody's full-time job just to work out mario and how mario works and all of the transitions of their moves what animations do we need what are the inputs what can you transition between and it's the same as call of duty there's a full-time job for somebody to come up with you know just the weapons um and then just the thing you mentioned earlier is well if they're doing it for so long and they've got so much experience what's the difference between modern warfare and modern warfare 2 or uh, modern warfare 2 and modern warfare 3 and that's where the marginal kind of innovation side of it comes in, which is you're trying to look for, you know, you've, you've done the 90% kind of part. You're trying to look for those marginal gains that kind of bump the 90% to 91 or 92. And between Modern Warfare 1 and Modern Warfare 2, uh, the new versions of the game, they added a, every time you shoot, 
they added a screen effect where the screen flashes white intermittently to make it feel like the flash of the weapon muzzle is appearing on your screen. That didn't appear in the previous game, and it made the weapons feel more powerful because now every time you were firing, it was physically impacting the camera in terms of a flash. And then Modern Warfare 2 to Modern Warfare 3, which is the new one, uh, when you have a big rifle and you have a pistol, you can weapon swap. So you pull out the pistol, and then you swap it, and then you pull out the rifle and vice versa. The difference this time is is that when you pull out the pistol, they keep the rifle on the screen. So it's almost like your hand is resting on the rifle with the pistol. And then when you put the pistol away, you pull the rifle back up again. So the difference there is, is that the rifle remains on screen, whereas previously the rifle used to just disappear kind of into your inventory. So again, it makes it feel more grounded and more immersive because you know a, a sniper is not just going to throw the sniper rifle on their back. They're going to kind of try and hold it in a comfortable way as possible. And again, that that's the life of that type of designer, which is trying to look for those marginal kind of gains year on year, you know, product on product. So, you know, we, you, you talk about Call of Duty, three different games, three different effects. Do Is there someone out there that's collecting data from players? Like, which one did you like the best? Which one, like, how do you measure the marginal innovation and if it was a positive or negative? Yeah, I mean, a lot, lots of games will will have telemetry now, so they'll have things like you know, what's your favorite class of weapons, and it, it, they they don't even have to ask players these things because the telemetry data that they're built into the game will tell them. Lots of people are using the shotgun, and they use this particular shotgun, and we can kind of guess the reasons why. That might be because of you know the kill rate of the weapon. It might be you know they tend to be more accurate with that particular weapon, but in terms of um, you know the sample or getting a, a, a proportion of the audience to kind of say, hey, I, I think this shotgun is the best and here's why. That might be an intermittent kind of survey that they'll do. Uh, there'll be lots of internal play tests that will tell people, hey, here's two weapons, use them both, tell us which one's your favorite and why, and that would be almost like an A-B test. And the difference there might be, one of the weapons might have had the audio has been bumped up. Maybe they've changed the audio, made it feel much more visceral. The other one, they've just kept the previous weapon from the previous game. No changes whatsoever. And then they will ask people, what do you think? And they'll know ahead of time. If they make reference to the audio, then we definitely know we've done our job. But sometimes people will say, oh, this gun feels more powerful. And they, they can't really describe why. And a lot of the time, it will be because of the audio, it'll be because of the haptics, the visual effects on screen, the animations that when you shoot an enemy, the, the enemy flips over backwards or something. Um, but yeah, success would be defining that kind of stuff beforehand and then having the play testers kind of mention those things. Yeah, I want to talk about the audio. And the one thing I just want to make a quick mention of, because I think it's really cool technology, is just the fact, and you mentioned haptics, but the PS5 controller, right? Because that's going to add a whole nother level of immersion when a player is playing a game. And I don't have a PS5, and my son's mad at me about that because he wants Spider-Man. But like, it seems like that's like the new... That's like next gen, right? I was also reading about Spider-Man, how they do fast travel, and that's a next-gen technology. I think everyone always talks about next-gen technology being the greatest graphics in the world, but no one thinks about things like load time, about immersion of playing in the controller. Yeah. And I, I think it's a cool thing and, you know, it falls under the control of your camera's control character. I know that's not what you mean there, but but I, I, I love that fact that the companies are starting to think of new ways to get people immersed into games. And I don't know how many people are actually taking advantage of the PS5 controller, but I, but I think that's probably one of the coolest parts of next gen is, is rethinking how people are playing the game. Yeah, and, and another part of that is that, I mean, there's, there's two sides of it. Well, so one part is there's a new technology, and then you have to kind of leverage it in, in a way that you think is going to improve your particular game. Uh, so, so when I worked on Hood Outlaws and Legends, and I'd worked on the crew, both of those games were cross-gen kind of games. So I was working on PS3, and then the game was coming out on PS4. And then for PS4, the game was coming out on PS5. And at that time, you don't have games on the market that you can look at and say, hey, we're going to do our haptics like Gran Turismo or wherever game that was kind of out there. They didn't exist at that time. So that's, that's the cool part of it is you're trying to set the new kind of standard for everybody because it doesn't exist yet. So that's pretty cool. The downside of it, though, is, is that for some teams, th there's not a lot of incentive to kind of do that additional work 
because it's a it's a bit more work for a platform that for example Xbox is not going to benefit from. So mm-hmm. if you if you put more time into the player character, the player character is in both games. But if you put time into the DualSense controller, that's something that's Sony specific. And if if Microsoft were to do their own controller, now there's another piece of work that you've got to do. And unfortunately, some developers look at it that way, which is it's additional work, it's additional time. Maybe we could spend it fixing bugs or improving this particular feature. But I'm a big advocate of that kind of stuff. Haptics in general, I love. And um, the the real trick with haptics, because it's a real kind of like dark art for a lot of people, is... A lot of people throw haptics on everything, literally everything. Reload the gun, shoot the gun, jump up and down, fall off the ledge, literally everything. And what happens is the pad just becomes like noise. Whereas the the few classic examples I've seen is in one of the Naughty Dog games in Last of Us, you see a flash of lightning into the distance and three seconds later, the pad rumbles for the, the effect of the thunderstorm. And that was super cool because it doesn't happen very often. You know, the pad is completely mute aside from that. And the other one is a, there's a game on PS5 called WRC, World Rally Championship. And every single track that you're on, the pad is going crazy because of the, you know, the, the different surfaces, you know, the, yeah. the mud, the, the dirt, the gravel, wherever it may be. It's going crazy. And then you get on a track that has tarmac. And the rumble is absent. And it's that classic feeling of kind of, you know, the, the absence of sound or you know, silence is golden or however you want to call it. And straight away you think, oh, my words, the pad isn't actually doing anything. And it really makes it feel like the asphalt is even smoother because there's no rumble on it whatsoever. It's really cool. I remember, and this was years ago, uh, I had the Microsoft Sidewinder joystick for my computer. And I think I was playing a game Midtown Madness 2 and like, just driving through the streets of San Francisco, like hitting bumps and feeling it. It's just like, this is the coolest technology. And it would fight you like sometimes there. I'm just like, I mean, Microsoft did this years ago. It's a bummer. It's not in the Xbox controller. I'm sure it will eventually find its way in there based on the feedback Microsoft had or Sony got. But I just, I mean, this all started with sound, right? And the other night I was trying to play call. I keep saying call of duty because I'm playing it right now, but yeah. like with almost no sound on, it's just like, it takes away such a big, feeling from the game when you don't hear the bullets like they're meant to be it almost feels like it's a kid's game and it's a weird yeah. thing to say but like it just doesn't have the same oomph or or power that you want it to have and I, it's such a cool time to be a gamer and, and feeling all these feelings yeah and another good test of that i know you said you didn't have a ps5 yet but a really good test is if you get a ps5 or you can get hold of the controller p- play the game for 10 minutes you know, some cool headphones, uh, you know, nice audio, wherever it may be. Then uh, mute the game and look at what the pad is doing, uh, how it sounds, and it's just alien. It it just makes no sense kind of what it's doing. But when it's when the game audio is kind of absent, it makes it sound like that. When the game audio is present, it kind of elevates it. So it, it, everything kind of complements each other. And if you've got one piece of the pie kind of missing, everything else starts to fall down. It's like a giant orchestra. Everyone's got to be, a, be exactly. in sync. Yep. So my, I have a couple more questions. First one is going to be kind of a basic one, but what did you want to be when you grew up? And a lot of times I talk to, again, customer success people who aren't dreaming of being a communication person in gaming, but maybe you did dream of making games. But but where did you want to be when you were growing up other than James Bond? Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely James Bond. Um, for, for, for most people, especially kind of younger guys in the UK, big kind of football fans, as in as in soccer. So most people kind of age five to 15, you know, think they're going to turn pro. And the reality is it's, it's, a, it's a fraction of a percent of people who even get to turn professional, never mind playing the Premier League. Um, so that's definitely one aspect of it. But probably towards my kind of mid-teens, the, the, the viability of a career in not just games, but tech in general was kind of kind of cropping up. Um, obviously, the, the, the school teachers and the, the career advisors never really mentioned that kind of stuff. They said about the army and, you know, becoming a teacher or the police or something. But uh, yeah, I'd probably say footballer and then transitioned into what I've become kind of now more of a designer creative type. Did uh, something lead you in that direction um a, a mixture of stuff um we we had some local kind of game studios um i'm in the northeast of the uk so we've always had kind of a, a games um or tech kind of sector it's almost like a mini silicon valley kind of locally 
Uh, so that was cool. There's some game TV shows that used to be on that used to have kind of celebrities or sometimes they would showcase, you know, here is the designer of Tekken or something, you know, from the 90s. And then that had a spin-off magazine. And that magazine would tell you behind the scenes of how those developers got their jobs. So I used to keep all of the kind of paper cuttings of those. You had the local kind of field of, you know, there's game studios nearby. And then my local university was also one of the highest rated in the country for games. So it was all on my doorstep, you know, the, the, the whole things kind of coalesced with each other. So you, you started by collecting football cards of your favorite footballers, and then you started came, collecting game designer cards from uh, your magazine. Exactly. There. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's an idea right there because, uh, yeah, they didn't, I didn't have many of them, but they could have done the whole industry for sure. Yeah. You know, I, I've spoken to a lot of people that once they kind of start building games, they kind of get sick of playing games once you know how the, the yeah. sausage is made, right? But, but you know, there's still a bunch of great games out there, especially this year. It's a great, great year for games, right? When, when you play a new game, are there certain criteria you look for and saying, hey, the design of this game is really good? Or is there a game you pick up that the design is so bad, you're just like, forget it, I can't play this? Like, how, how does your brain process this? Yeah, so this, this is a great question. I think in contemporary kind of times, Game Pass is both the best and worst thing. I think that happens to, to everybody that's a consumer. And, and more particularly speaking from my perspective, it's the best in that you're getting a sheer variety, large volume of games. You don't necessarily know which ones are kind of the greatest until you kind of try them. But that's the kind of the downside, which is, is that I think a lot of them are really disposable. So in some cases, it can be, it can take longer for you to download that game than you will actually put time into it. So go back to the three C's I mentioned earlier. There's a reason why Call of Duty is so successful. And it's not just because, you know, people talk about the file size being so large. It's that it's a well-established, great shooter where the gunplay feels satisfying. And if you're going to download a game on Game Pass, the expectation is going to be is that the gunplay is comparable with Call of Duty. And if it's not, you're going to bounce off it pretty quickly. And I would probably say that for myself is that I'm just as culpable for that. If I have a limited amount of hard drive space, that's the limiting factor and time is also the limiting factor um so more nowadays i'm playing games you know maybe for an hour a day maybe 90 minutes per day on on average i should say any given uh, individual is playing games for 90 minutes per day so what i'm looking for in that 90 minutes realistically now is meaningful progress um if i feel like i'm playing a game where the game is arbitrarily trying to kind of trip me up or has excessive amount of tutorials or cutscenes that I can't skip or I can't customize the controls the way that makes it most comfortable for me and a whole myriad of kind of other factors that would be the thing that would push me away from that particular product and the opposite that which is these are the types of things that I'm not looking for but they're almost like the baseline you know that that's table stakes and then the great stuff is when people take something that maybe you either underestimate or maybe they take the gunplay and, and they take it in a slightly different direction from Call of Duty so that you get more surprise from it. That's the type I'm, type of stuff I'm looking for. And uh, just the notion of loving the player, I've mentioned that a few times kind of earlier. It, a lot of games tend to use randomness kind of factors or they really want to get a kick out of kind of punishing people, you know, Dark Souls. I'm a big advocate of just just love the player in in general. You know, be really generous to them in terms of ammo counts, enemy perception, and kind of you know stealth games. Um, if you felt like you got a headshot, then you did get a headshot. You know, it's it's that kind of stuff. If it's a dice roll, give the player a six more often than they get a one. You know, it's that kind of stuff. You you kind of mentioned this a couple times now about kind of metrics in game, right? Like t telemetry, what type of guns are you picking? How often are you logging in when you're quitting? As a game designer, do you have access to a lot of these metrics? Is it something you monitor? Or is there someone else here that who that's their primary job? Yeah, that, that can it's a good question because that can depend on the team, actually. Um, on, on some projects that I worked on, Hood Outlaws and Legends, that was a smaller scale double A project we didn't have a dedicated live designer or somebody who's looking at post-launch. And that's what that person's job would be. It would be when the game goes live, this person is responsible for what's the community saying about the game or what did the telemetry kind of suggest about the experience. So in that project, I direct access to all of that stuff. On Call of Duty, I was helping them write the tools for what's the type of things we wanted to track because I was involved with um, 
ammo scarcity and resource scarcity. So the idea being is that we want to create a game where the player felt like they were really tense and that every bullet felt like it mattered because in a world war, we weren't going to give you infinite kind of ammo. So I helped write the telemetry tools that would basically track a heartbeat of what the player would have at any given moment, how much they would gain, how much they would lose, how much did the enemy drop, what types of bullets did they drop, and so on. But on on larger projects I've been involved in, some of them I've never even seen that stuff kind of whatsoever, or I've not seen that stuff outside of my realm. So I know everything about, you know, the gunplay, but I don't know anything about the multiplayer maps and, you know, which one was the most played because there'll be a separate set of telemetry for that. Yeah, it's an interesting thought, right? Like you can create the best gun in the world and if it's on too big of a map, your gun's going to be pointless or if it's a shotgun, right? Like, yeah. and if you're in a role that you can't combine that data there, it's kind of like, I only know what I know, but I have to imagine yeah. most of these big companies have people that have visibility over high levels being able to see most of it and i don't know I'm a, I'm a fan of numbers and metrics so being able to see data like that is something that excites me and kind of you can start to make educated choices based off of what you're seeing yeah exactly we are coming to time i had a couple more questions but we're in a position where i don't really know the types of questions that you ask a game designer when you're talking to them is there some magic that's happening in the back end or something that you just excites you about this that you just want to share or, or yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the one thing I definitely want to touch upon is just about the notion of the secret sauce. I mean, we chatted about this a few times, kind of off air, but it, it's just um, going back to the thing about loving the player. It's the types of decisions that designers make, and not just designers, but people making game development that really help sell the experience and make it a game as opposed to real life. So I, I just had a few examples in mind. Is in a combat game or a shooter game, when you throw a grenade just bounce the grenade a few extra times for it to get to its target. Um, So it's almost like the grenade has its own little gravitational kind of pull. From a player's point of view, you threw the grenade and you got the awesome shot. But from the designer's point of view, you did 90% of the work and we helped you with the 10% that kind of mattered or kind of vice versa. Um, And obviously it's it's a subtle thing as well. It's it's a gravitational pull. It's one extra bounce. Um, A really good one just for combat because you mentioned Spider-Man. In Spider-Man, there's an enemy that fires a, a timed bomb kind of at you. If you grab that with your web sling, instead of going three, two, one, explode, it goes three, two, one, and then it stays in the one state for as long as you hold the bomb and then you fire it back at people. And it's a little rule change like that, which is the bomb timer has just frozen in time because the player is now going to use it as a tool. Uh, platforming is a good one. They have the notion of kind of when you walk off a ledge, you get what's called coyote time. So you walk off a ledge, and then for a brief moment, you can still push the jump button, even though you're in midair, exactly like Wiley Coyote and kind of Roadrunner, in the sense that it makes it more generous to people. So if they were too late with the button press. Um, driving games, when you talk about burnout or games where you're driving really fast, the general notion is the faster you drive, the more likely you are to crash. In the burnout games, they do the opposite to that, which is the faster you drive, if you clip the side of a bus, just something on the edge, it will actually push you back into the road instead of causing a crash because they want to sustain the speed as opposed to kind of penalizing the player. And then another really uh, low-level one for stealth games, for example, is if you have a stealth cone on a character, you might expect that the eyes for a character in a stealth game are where where human eyes are. But typically, you tend to put the vision cone of an enemy on their chest or at the top of their clavicle because there's more rotation in the head than there is in the clavicle. So when the enemy looks at you, they might see you at the peripheral of their vision because the the chest has got a lower turning circle than the head has. So there's little subtle tricks like that in lots of games where it's it's done to make it feel like the player is the master of the game as opposed to trying to punish people and there's an infinite amount of these in tons of games you, you can look for them and find them but most people just it just goes over their head and they don't notice i feel like it's you just broke my heart i feel like it's something i did i think of even just playing uh starfield like you you use your jetpack to get as high as you can to the top of a mountain that you shouldn't be climbing and all of a sudden like you stop for a second like oh why am i stopped right here i'm gonna jump again real quick and it's just like uh, it seems like it's the uh, it's enhancing the player's experience. Like, how do we give them a not a god mode, but how do we make them feel a little more powerful? I uh, even think back 
to my days of playing Burnout Paradise now that you mentioned it, like you're trying so hard to crash into the middle of that intersection, but you just miss every time. You're just like, what's happening here? And I guess it's just the game kind of building this in that, again, you don't, it's, I can't even finish by saying there, but it's just, it's fascinating to think about like, yeah, I guess a good game designer, you are doing that. You want to make it feel like a special experience. Uh, the grenade hits the wall. The grenade, like, yeah, you aim where you aim, but we'll make the path unique. I, I, exactly, and and it it depends on the type of experience, but you can make that as obvious or as subtle as you want it to be. The example you mentioned with Burnout Paradise, I've had exactly the same thing. You want to hit the intersection, and and the game is doing the opposite, and you're almost fighting against the rules. But even something simple, if you think of it like John Wick. John Wick will punch somebody in the face, he'll kick the gun out of the hand, turn around, shoot somebody in the head, and then he'll catch the gun in their hand. There's a game called Super Hot. It does exactly that kind of behavior. It's very John Woo. You shoot the enemy, they throw the gun up in the air, and the gun just so magically happens to land in your hand. It could have landed anywhere in the room, but it but it's gravitated towards your hand, and then that's the gun that you use to shoot somebody else. And again, it's just it's what's the type of experience you're trying to create. And then what are the things that you need to do to push it towards that experience? And uh, yeah, I've, I've seen on some projects where people say, oh, well, that won't work because they're, they're taking it from a real life kind of perspective as opposed to what the game is supposed to be soliciting. It's movie magic. Exactly. Movie magic. Yeah, it's it's the Ferrari in the rock. You know, I love that the Hollywood reel that, the, you know, the Ferrari drives on the paths and people just magically get out the way. Yep. That, that's how it happens. Yeah. Love it. It's great stuff. And this is a great conversation. I really enjoyed this. I mean, I still want to continue to learn more about the process of how process of how a video game is made. And I also, I mean, I took other notes of what you things you mentioned, Alex Kidd being your first game. You talked about Crazy Taxi, which I love because, yeah. you know, we talked about just the feeling of the game. And I feel like Crazy Taxi is such a good feel when you start driving that car. And then the beginning of the music with uh, the offspring. Yeah, lots more we could talk about. Uh, but I know we're getting close to time, and I do appreciate you stopping by and reaching out uh, to be on the podcast. It's an honor, and I, and I appreciate you doing that and helping opening my eyes to what's going on. Um, is there anything else before we end today that you want to just share with our listeners? No, I mean, that, that was pretty much everything. I mean, the, the, the stuff I've mentioned there in general is just almost like a scratching the surface of design kind of in general. But if anybody wants to kind of know more about that kind of stuff, G- GDC Vault is a great place to go. So Game Developers Conference, um, it's a paid kind of service, but they put a lot of free talks on YouTube and on their, their site itself. So yeah, search for GDC Vault and you'll come up with lots of videos that talk about exactly this particular stuff for very specific games like God of War and Spider-Man and so on. Actually, before we jump, my, my last question to you would be like, where do you source your information from? Like, for example, right, we're having this great conversation and I did another one with Tim Benison from, from Hothead Games who talks about game pillars, right? I'm just like putting all this stuff together and it's making sense. But like, where's, where's your source of knowledge? Where, where, do you have a go-to source? Yeah, in, in general, po- podcasts is kind of a big one. I, I'd probably get through three hours of podcasts or so kind of a day. It's about my morning routine, just when I'm at the gym or kind of out and about and stuff. So that that's a really big one. Um, and then otherwise, GDC Vault, which yeah. updates once a year. I think it's in March and April, but they literally put, you know, easily six months worth of content to get through on there. So, and, and that's that's most contemporary because it's recent developers on recent games. So you're getting the most kind of up-to-date knowledge on how they're addressing problems that people have in the industry. Uh, and then otherwise, it just comes from the combination of those two things. But because we're mostly kind of problem solvers, that's the type of stuff I'm interested in is how people solve problems in different ways. And it's not always coming from games. You know, as we said about The Rock or Hollywood Reel and stuff, people have done this kind of stuff in movies since the 30s. Just take that kind of knowledge and those learnings and apply it to games. Yeah, it's a, it's your best source of knowledge of seeing what else is out there, what other industries yeah. are doing. I know I've had people reach out to me just about the podcast because user experience, player experience, no matter what you want to call it, it's the same thing, different industry. And yep. I don't know, it's great stuff. And again, Jamie, I, I really do appreciate you coming out today. This was a fun conversation and hopefully we, we can meet up when you're out on the East Coast. Yeah. And again, thank you very much for coming on today. Perfect. No, thanks. Thanks for your time.